Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Good morning. Today is the day. It is Tuesday. It is the 5th of November, 2019. So next year on this day, when I say good morning, it's the first Tuesday of November, 2020. It will be election day. It's actually election day today. It's just not the kind of election day that most of us are paying super duper close attention to. So a year from today, the United States of America will be going to the polls and uh, and we will be voting In addition to uh, a presidential election, we'll be voting on a lot of other things. And so I want us to be mindful of the year that we have between now and the next presidential election. And I want us to be mindful of how we behave, how we honor Christ in the midst of the conversations that we're going to have, the ways that we are going to present ourselves, um, even in the midst of very partisan conversations where we are deeply divided over many things. And so up first this morning, I'm going to talk with Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We're going to talk about um, the local nature of all politics. And then we're also going to talk about what we do when partisanship just gets to the point where it's poisonous and uh, and how we how we respond to that as Christians, how we um, maybe provide some anti-venom in our conversations. And so that's the conversation that's coming up next. But first, I just want to um, I want to do one story headline with you before I bring Mark on. And that's this. uh, You've probably already heard that the city of San Francisco is boycotting all pro-life states, any states where there is legislation in place that would be what you and I would think of as expressly pro-life. The city of San Francisco and the state of California um, no longer do business with uh, with states where they view women's productive rights to be threatened Um, However, they do increasing amounts of business, lots of business already, but increasing amounts of business with China. And so, you know, China does forced abortions. Um, We've talked about the way that China deals with people of faith, including Christians, but certainly we have talked about the internment um, of the Uyghur population, which is a Muslim population in Western China. Um, We have talked about uh, the repression of the Chinese Communist Party, of people who have any sort of democratic hope or a desire even even for a freedom of conscience. Um, We have talked about the systematic persecution of the state in terms of the Chinese state, the Communist Party. Um, And so I just, here's here's the way I want to lay this out for us. Where and with whom you do business actually matters. God, God actually cares about that. God actually cares with whom and where we do business. And I am I'm not saying that uh, maybe we should all boycott China, but I am saying that those of us who live in in cities and in states where we have the opportunity to make our voice heard, to make the concerns of our heart known um, through the freedoms that we enjoy here in the United States of America. Um, I think it is it is our obligation to talk to the people at city council, 
talk to the people um, in your county government. Certainly talk to the people at the state level uh, in, in the state where you live and say, I want you to know that it's not OK with me. It's not OK with me that we do business with China um, until and unless these these horrible, horrible human rights violations are addressed. Um, and in the meantime, it's also not OK with me that we fail to do business, that we restrict doing business because other states in uh, in the union have pro-life laws, laws on the books that protect life. Um, and in fact, while I'm here, I wish our state had uh, had laws protecting life. So there you go. There's uh, some some ways to take a, an international headline, let's say related to China and what's going on in Hong Kong. Um, in relationship to the repression of the protesters, the pro-democracy protesters, or what's going on in in China, uh, in the mainland of China, related to Christian churches and Christians and persecution, which we talked with Voice of the Martyrs, Todd Nettleton about, um, uh, or maybe the what is happening with the Uyghur population. I mean, on and on. The list is long. The list of uh, of sins of the Communist Party in China is long. And so, you know, this is a way to take an international headline and localize it. By going to your own local government and saying, hey, are we doing business with China? Because if we are, um, I'm not okay with that. All right. uh, Next up, Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We're going to continue this conversation about all politics being local. I'm going to ask him, what does that mean? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, joining me now, Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University, uh, continuing our ongoing conversation about how we apply the faith to the things going on in the world today. Um, thank you for uh, thank you for coming back and joining us again. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Carmen. So let me just start with this statement that I feel like I heard in in at least civics class, but maybe um, maybe even prior to that, you know, like around the dinner table of my own family uh, back in Tampa when, you know, maybe a friend was running for local office of some kind. Um, All politics is or are local. First of all, how should I be saying that? All politics is local. All politics are local. Um, And then explain what we mean by that statement. Yeah, it's all politics is local. So yeah, I always get those uh, tenses and I get the uh, verb agreement messed up myself. But um, all politics is local basically could mean, I think, two things. One is most of the important political issues for for day-to-day Americans really are settled at the local level. Uh, When you think of your interactions with government, whether it's the uh, Bureau of Motor Vehicles or whether it's the police force, the fire department, or even your teachers and other things, those are all local and state issues that really are settled uh, much closer to you than they are to Washington, D.C. And so I I think a lot of us tend to focus on those national events and national issues because that's what uh, the overwhelming amount of news coverage that we consume really pulls us toward. Uh, But but really our political lives are, are really more dependent on what happens in local elections. But I think the other part of it, though, is that even those national political parties and political figures and political candidates, they influence people through local conversations. And so I don't interact with the Republican National Party, really. I interact with the state party or with the county party or with the 
the district that I'm in or the precinct that I'm in, I don't interact with national officials, whether I'm a Republican, Democrat, or whoever. I have conversations with people at the local level, even if they represent those national organizations. And so for most of us, I think politics truly is a local matter, even if we see it typically through a national lens. So I feel like I'm a person who's fairly well informed about some things. Um, And yet I will admit to you that uh, until it became of particular interest to me for a very specific reason, I had never even bothered to find out much about my state party, um, nor the rules of my state party related to who can run for something. And, you know, how many years of work you got to put in before you ever might think about running for something local. Oh, yeah. I mean, most of the local candidates are really products of uh, long-term relationships that they've developed with with state party members, county members, districts and precincts. And those relationships then lead to candidacies. You know, Very rarely can someone just step into the political world and say, oh, by the way, I'm a candidate. Now, please come and vote for me. Uh, these things are party affairs. And most of us go to the polls, right? And we look at the ballot. We don't know the name of that person at the local level, unfortunately, Uh, But we recognize the party symbol that's next to them. And that's really the party's power to have over these local contests. But those elections are really, like you said, they're product of relationships that go back years and sometimes decades. So my encouragement uh, to folks who are listening is is actually to find out what's going on in your local community at the most local level. Because when we talk about all politics being local, um, we are talking about this. But we're also talking about a completely different kind of all politics is local conversation. And this is the one I want to have next, Mark. Um, I want to talk about, so, you know, we hear in the headline news, the U.S. economy is doing this or that. We get the jobs report. We hear every single day, like ad nauseum, that the Dow industrial average is up or down by some percentage. Um, We hear about the national debt. We hear about something, you know, some idea that some national politician has that's going to cost $53 trillion. Those are not even numbers that we can imagine. Um, Other big numbers that we hear in the media. I got to tell you, when I think about my own home economics, there is a disconnect between the conversation that happens at the national political level about economics and the home economics I'm dealing with at the most local of levels. Talk about all politics being local when we talk about the economy. Yeah, I mean, think of it as something as basic as taxes. I mean, a fair bit of the taxes that you pay, what we tend to think of are sort of federal income taxes, but taxes you pay can come into local sales taxes, local school taxes, uh, property taxes. I mean, these things add up sometimes as much as or for some people more than their, uh, federal, uh, their federal tax liabilities. And so you know, we like to look at things and we like to see what how the government's affecting us. But we typically think, well, you know, I'm going to vote for this party or I'm going to vote for this president. I'm going to vote for this person for Congress. When a lot of these choices are being made by people who are sitting on city councils and who are on county commissions and who are state representatives and state senators. And these are people in your community. You know, these are people that you can get to know. These are people that you can build relationships with and try to persuade and try to influence. Uh, You know, we can government can have a dramatic effect on our local economy. Government can encourage economic development. You know, government can refurbish property. Government can do all kinds of things at the local level to benefit us economically. Uh, But we're so disconnected from it, uh, almost like we're programmed to only be looking at a few key national political figures and symbols. Uh, A good example is I think is the local newspaper that used to be the dominant source of information for most people. 
and that was full of local issues. Well, that's pretty much gone in a lot of communities now. And so now the, the source of information that you get is probably a national source of information, social media or a national news network. Okay, so like I remember when I was growing up, right, you know, the the local newspaper actually came and I don't know, somebody yep. took pictures at ball games, right? And like, you know, so I have <laughs> clippings, you know, from when I was a teenager, like, right, you know, there's this one photograph, right, that made the paper. Like, I remember that. I don't think kids have that anymore, or at least not, not uh, at that level, because we just don't have that kind of coverage in terms of local and community events. So, um, all right, so that's a little shout-out for local journalism and local newspapers and those kinds of things. Let's be supporting all of those folks. Um, but let's be paying attention today to the most local of our politics, not just what's happening happening nationally. When Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University and I come back, we're going to talk about how our partisanship feels pretty poisonous Um, It feels to me like it's kind of infecting everything. We're going to talk about an anti-venom, how we uh, as Christians maybe could serve as an anti-venom in the discourse of the day. That conversation up next. We'll be right back. All right. Rejoining the conversation now with Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, Mark, if I were just simply to make the observation that our partisanship in this country feels poisonous. And I would like to see Christians enter the conversations of the day as almost an anti-venom. Draw me a picture or describe what that might look like. Well, I mean, first, I think we got to have at least a little bit of an understanding of why our politics and our parties really can feel so toxic right now. Um, People need to understand, I think, that their attachment to their political party is really an emotional and I think a psychological attachment, and that doesn't make it wrong. I mean, we have a lot of strong, good emotional and psychological attachments to things in our lives, like our family members and other people. But sometimes that that psychological attachment crowds out other things, and so you love your party, but you don't, you know, you don't examine the truth of what your party is saying. Uh, you are so attached to your party that you don't have the objectivity to look at it and to figure out whether maybe members of your party are making bad decisions. And so we have to first understand, I think, our relationship to that party before we can even begin to think about how to critique it or how to be maybe a little bit more detached from it uh, than we have been before. So I think that's really the first place that we have to start. Okay, so part of it is I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a serious like conversation in the mirror with myself about my emotions and my psychological attachment to certain ideas and ideologies. And part of that is I, I have to. I have to then ask, like, is this really godly? Is right. it is it for the common good? Or is yep. there some kind of um not just selfishness? Because I for me it's normally pride or selfishness. Like no, those are those are normally what get in the way for me. Right. But is right. there is there a meanness? Am I like am I is this an is this a non gracious or non generous way that I'm thinking? And let me let me hold that up to who Christ is and what I know about him. And let me evaluate whether or not this is the way I should think or feel about this. That's hard. It's it's very hard. And it, and it may come down to almost like an intervention. I mean, I've had some of these conversations with people in the past where you just almost have to take them aside and say, listen, you know, just as a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, I'm looking at some things and I'm noticing some attitudes and I'm seeing the way that you're treating other people and, you know, we, we may have to really think hard about this and pray about this 
uh, because I think it's becoming a problem. And sometimes those conversations, can, as you can imagine, can go sideways. Uh, people don't always like to be confronted with, I think, things that they're struggling with. And that's it's perfectly natural in a way to not to not like that. But I think that's the first place that you start. And then you have to think through, OK, what can I do practically to begin to reflect Christian values and to re begin to reflect the love of Christ uh, to people, even in the political realm? And that's also hard to do because we're we're almost programmed to see those people on the other side of the political fence as enemies. And we're mm. almost programmed to think of them as so as, as being so opposed to our point of view and so opposed to our values and our worldview that they don't even deserve the common respect that we would give other people or strangers, but we categorize them as enemies. But as you know, scripture's got something to say about how we treat enemies. We love them. And that's really hard to do in the political world when it pulls us in these very polarized directions. I think that's the best place to start. So, Mark, I had an experience um, a number of years ago um, where, you know, I this shift really took place in my own, not just in my own mind, but deeply in my heart. Um, and that seeing somebody on the other side of a political fence, um, I, I the image um, and I trust that God gave me the image because it really was a, a, a moment of serious change of heart for me. Um, I saw the people on the other side of the fence, not as political enemies, but as real prisoners of war. Yeah. Um, you know, not as operatives so much as hostages yeah. and ho hostages to um, a really horrible way of thinking about things and about people and about life and about God um, and being in very, very real bondage. And my reaction and response to a prisoner of war is not that I'm mad at them. I mean, I don't engage somebody who is who is who is trapped, um, who is a hostage, who is in a in in a in a situation in a life circumstance from which they need saving. Um, I don't respond to them with anger. I respond to them with pity. Now, I'll just come right out and tell you, people don't like to be pitied. So my political adversaries don't like that that I now pity them. But it is a change of heart and mind for me, and it absolutely radically changes the way that I approach not only my prayer for them, but my conversations with them. Yeah, I had a I had a similar experience in some ways. I used to live in between a very uh, hardcore conservative, literally on one side of my house, and the other side of my house is a very progressive, very staunch progressive person. And I was literally and figuratively in between those people. And they would both come to my house and talk about the other person. And I was sort of became this go between where they would vent about the other person and the wrongness of their politics. And I started to see the, as you said, the venom that they would put forward about the other person. And then I had to figure out, you know, how can I be a source of, of healing in this situation? How can I try to bring these people together and bring them to some kind of accommodation so that they can restore a relationship? And that caused me to really evaluate my own point of view. Now, I mean, I certainly agreed with one of those neighbors more than the other on political issues. But when it came to that relationship, it was far more important for me to be a bridge between those people than to sort of add to the divide. I think we have to you have to think through your opportunities to engage and interact and respond to people as a believer first, not as a partisan. And that's it's tough because our culture doesn't support this. So really, at the end of the day, the Gospels are asking us to be countercultural, and this is a great way to do it. Absolutely. Amen. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back 
so we can continue this conversation. I, this is actually what I hear from people that they want help with the most. It's one thing for us to be able to sort of like rightly evaluate what's happening in the culture. It's another thing altogether to then know how to respond and step in and be a bridge or um, or an agent of grace or an ambassador of peace. Like it's, it's really hard to sow peace and we need to be taught how to do it. So thank you for tilling the soil with us this morning. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Carmen. Likewise. All right. We will be uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, so one thing it's one thing to write books for kids. It's another thing to teach the Bible to little kids over lots of years and then actually write down those stories in such a way that you already know hey, when we talk with kids this way about the Bible, they not only fall in love with God, they like get the big story. They get who God is and his promises for them and the way that he's the keeper of all promises and the way that he's going to keep them in his promises. So that uh, all rolled up together is Jennifer Lyle's uh, story. And the outcome, the production, the product is the Promises of God Storybook Bible, the story of God's unstoppable love. She's been teaching kids in Sunday school. Uh, she's been teaching them the Bible for many, many years. And uh, and over the course of time has just learned how to tell the story of God's promises in such a way that they're literally knit into the heart of a child. Um, and so the Promises of God Storybook Bible with Jennifer Lyle up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Temptation. It's a feeling as old as life itself. Adam and Eve succumbed to it first, and generations have struggled with it ever since. And when it comes to being wise with money, well, there's no shortage of temptation. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know one of the things that tempts me? Beautiful clothes. And if there's a sale, I can usually let temptation take over and convince me of some reason to buy a new blouse or a pair of shoes. It takes self-discipline to keep walking past that storefront. So what can you do when you're faced with temptation to spend money on something you don't need? Well, remind yourself you already have enough. And take a moment to be grateful for what you do have. Clothes at home, shoes to wear, and food to eat. So say no to wanting more, and yes to being content with what you have. You'll be one step closer to a life of confidence, contentment, and generosity. thrilled to be joined today by Jennifer Lyle. She is the author of The Promises of God Storybook Bible, The Story of God's Unstoppable Love. Jennifer, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a thrill to have you with us this morning. Um, You already know that this is a fan favorite at my house. Um, and so I'm, I'm just excited to be sharing it with our listening audience uh, today. Again, it's The Promises of God Storybook Bible. Jennifer Lyle is the author. Tell us the name of your illustrator, because I don't want to try to pronounce it without knowing. Okay, so here's the thing. I actually am not 100% sure how to say his last name you either. You make me feel so much better. Let's just call him Thanos. I've decided just to call him Thanos. And <laughs> I was going to just do Thanos. We were going to talk to him about just doing Thanos on the cover, because it also is cool. Right. Um, but then we realized that um, there's another 
very prominent storybook Bible, the Jesus storybook Bible, the illustrator right at the last minute, we realized it's just the first name for the illustrator as well. And it's like Jago or Jago. And we're like, yeah, that's going to look a little too weird. So, so I don't know if it's to Silas. He lives in Crete. So I think it's Silas. I think it's just pronounced Silas. The T is silent. And then, okay, well, there we go. So anyway, we're just going to call him Thanos, and now we have we have definitely piqued people's interest. They're going to Google it, and just so they can correct Absolutely. us. All right. So you have been teaching the Bible to children for a number of years. So I'd yeah. like to start with this: Why kids? Because you could be teaching the Bible to anybody. So why why do you feel drawn to be opening God's Word and God's promises with children? Um, it's a great question. And um, first, I would say I I have definitely landed on, I primarily teach and teach Sunday school to kids. And I'm committed to doing that as long as my local church and God allows me. I have taught adult women classes. I've taught overseas women of all ages. And I do um, disciple one-on-one young women pretty consistently, always have one or two of those relationships one-on-one. But I have found that for Sunday school, um, you know, week after week, systemic Bible teaching, that teaching specifically for me, the age that I've landed on, that is kind of my love, my passion, and I think a distinct calling and gifting is um, three to four-year-olds. And I, to me, it's the age that is... Um, from a pedagogical standpoint, it's the developmental age where they can most often earliest um, start to cognitively engage really concrete truth. But at the same time, they have their walls down a little bit still as far as their sense of self is not so tightly held on to and so self-aware that they're, you know, guarded and they're in the way that older children can be and definitely adults can be. And where I've seen that work in the context of teaching is their ability to understand concrete truth coupled with that openness allows them to also accept some of the mystery of what we can't know about God. So, in the children of that age is where I've actually experienced being able to teach um, God's truth most faithfully, most comprehensively, and it be most widely and broadly received and really reflected back to me in a way that challenges my own faith as to things that I struggle with, that they're very willing to understand and accept. Mm. So um, I have a special needs child in my home. So when you talk about three and four year olds, um, you are definitely talking about, you know, kids who are not yet reading. And so we are reading to them or we are telling them stories. And that's really what this um, what this Bible, the Promises of God Storybook Bible feels like to me. It feels like um, I'm I'm equipped to not only read it, but uh, and tell the story. But then to invite the child sitting next to me to learn to read as well. And I know that is moving forward, um, you know, beyond the three and four year old set. But um, but let me just tell people that's the experience that we're having 
at my house, I'm always looking for books that are visually appealing to Matthew um, and and yet are at a reader level that he is um, both engaged with and not intimidated by. Like there are words that he's learning in here that's not all words he already knows, but it seems to be written at a level that is designed not only just for me as an adult to read it to a child who's learning to read, but also then to be able to pass it into their lap and have them read it. Exactly. That was the goal. And I will say, Carmen, when you, I believe it was on Twitter, you commented that it was one of the most encouraging things for me because um, obviously, yes, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because I do teach three to four, but the book actually, the the range is more um, kind of four to 10 um, mm-hmm. broadly. And it depends on three-year-old as far as how the parent's going to engage and so forth. I have the benefit teaching to stand in front of them and be able to see if they're making eye contact and know that specific three-year-old and cater the teaching to them. Obviously with a book, you've got to go more broadly. My goal was that first of all, that it's representing the tradition of how scripture was taught for thousands of years. Most families did not have copies of the scripture themselves. And so, you know, they would go to temple and, you know, have scripture read or the stories of old taught and New Testament times, same thing. You know, Jesus did not have in his home a copy of all of the Old Testament. Now, obviously Jesus did not need it, but the point being a 12 year old boy in Jesus's time did not have that accessible to him to read himself. He was going somewhere to temple or in the home where it was being read to him. And I do think that especially today where um, so many children at younger and younger ages, it seems to me, are being engaging themselves through media, whether it's print and written in books or magazines or on a screen on their own. This really is written to first and primary, primarily to be read aloud um, as a group, as a family, one-on-one to a child, parent to a child, child to a parent. Um, the questions at the end of every story to help facilitate that. But one of the things I've also loved is um, someone sent me a picture on social media they had uncovered their their child's bed in the morning and it was underneath the covers in the child's bed and the child had taken it to bed because she wanted to read the story one more time and you know she was six and so she could read and having had dad read it to her the night before it was a reminder of that time but also reading as well and so to me I do think it is um, it has some theological depth and instruction woven in along with some kind of what I call whimsy. Um, I think it's the only oh, yeah. story out there that uses the phrase pouty pants. Um, <laughs> and so, but at the same time also, you know, talks about penal substitutionary atonement without using that phrase. It defines it a little differently. Yeah. So, it is, so it is right. definitely... <laughs> No, it's definitely theologically rich. All right, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Jennifer Lyle, author of The Promises of God's Storybook Bible, The Story of God's Unstoppable Love. We'll be right back.
Continuing my conversation with Jennifer Lyle, author of The Promises of God, a storybook Bible. Jennifer, I want to talk about the use of promises as the rhythm of um, of this. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's hard for me to call it a book of this Bible um, mm-hmm. because you spend uh, you got 24 lessons or promises of God from the Old Testament. And then we have a total of 52. So I'm so bad at math, but um, there's a total of. <laughs> So there's 25 through 52. There's a little, there's a few more promises uh, of God from the New Testament. I loved the rhythm. It won't be hard for adults who know the scripture well um, to, to recognize like the first promise or the broken promise. We would recognize that as, as the fall. I love the language of the colorful promise for the rainbow and the story of Noah. The promise in the stars was such a delightful way of capturing, you know, God's promise or covenant with uh, with Abraham, like on and on and on. It's just it's beautiful, um, dreamy promises, the prisoner's promise. People will immediately like as I say those things, they're going to be like, oh, I recognize that story. I've never thought of it that way. The plagues of promise, the Passover promise. And these are obviously all, um, you know, I'm reading from the list from the Old Testament. Talk about the power of of this language when we're talking about communicating God's story and the story of who God is um, and what God is up to in in the context of human history, you, using this language of promise, particularly with children. Yeah, I so I would love to say, especially coming out of a seminary background and having worked, you know, in ministry and publishing for a long time too, say that I had this really great just strategic insight, but it really wasn't. It was that week after week teaching the Old Testament. The Old Testament is what I teach to my Sunday school class. And I've been teaching this class for about six years. And I, in the first year or two, I was really struggling with um, the curriculum we used didn't really give a, a consistent way to tie these individual stories together. And I didn't grow up in the church and was saved as an adult and then went to seminary. And it was fascinating to me that when I got to seminary, so many of those who were there who grew up in the church, their faith was not real to them, was not their own, was not, they weren't really saved very often until actually around the time I was as an adult. And it was because they had all these stories, right? But they didn't have a construct. They really hadn't, um, hadn't really been given a systematic theology, for lack of a better term, as to who God is. And to me, primarily what I want a child to understand um, is who God is, who they are, and why in light of our history with sin, why that's a problem and how the scriptures unfolds the problem and God's plan for the solution. That's what this individual stories we teach children should do as individual stories. They don't on their own naturally do that. And so I just tried a lot of different things and it was really honestly through kids asking questions. I asked a lot of questions at the end of stories to fit at the end of story time to figure out what they've learned And I was struggling through answering a why question and, um, you know, why, well, why did God? And one day I said, well, he promised. And the minute I said promise, the little girl who had been asking the question, it just clicked. And I thought, moms and dads promise. They know that like, are we, can we go to the zoo today? Maybe. Can we go to the zoo today? Yes. Do you promise? 
yes, that means something different. So there's, there's a sense of trust and a weight to something with promise. And so it, it connects to them, but it is absolutely throughout the scriptures. And it's interesting because even last night I was reading in Hebrews and um, was doing a really, I usually do kind of slow reading through scripture and was doing a fast reading through the book of Hebrews. And, you know, I get to, you know, the legendary passage on the heroes of the faith and it's all built around the language is all built. Around, they believe promises Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, the faith rooted in, what is the faith rooted in? What are, what are they having? What are we having faith in? Well, faith is in God, but our faith is in a particular God. And it is the God who can make promises and is powerful enough to be able to keep those promises. And so the promises started out as something that they could help them understand that it was present in every single, every single story all throughout the scripture. Um, so I could consistently use it and tie things together just really practically, but then more broadly and missionally, it's a way to introduce them to the character of God and how the character of God relates to the need that they don't even know that they have but that they discover through these stories. So um, only because I uh, read all the way to the back of the book and lived this experience with you um, at our local church, uh, do I feel um, even capable of asking the question about Job? Yes. Um, But I know that anyone who picks up the storybook, uh, the, the Promises of God storybook Bible, and reads both the dedication and gets all the way to the gratitude section at the very end, is going to um, come across this. This book is dedicated in part to the loving memory of Job Wilson Kemp. He was a three-year-old when I first met him, quiet at first, and then you tell the story of how he's asking questions about the Trinity and really pressing you yep. as a three-year-old, pressing yep. you, pressing you. And so that's this, that's this conversation that you're having with children as they are trying to understand what is, as you describe here, incomprehensible for most adults. Um, it, it was an experience related to Job that really provoked finally the writing of this book. Tell people that story because, um, I think people need to know that we know life is hard and we know that God's promises are real. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked this question. I'm actually wearing a team Job shirt today for one of his, one of the fundraisers that his mom and dad do for St. Jude. So Job, um, yeah, was a little boy in our church and I really didn't know his mom and dad well at the time that he came into the class when I first had him, he's the oldest in the family. And I taught him for a year and I knew there was something distinct about this child. Um, I always say parents aren't allowed to have favorites. Teachers are supposed to act like they don't, but we do. Um, And um, Job was definitely one of my favorites that year because he asked questions that I had never been asked by a child of any age. And I've taught first grade, I've taught middle school, I've taught high school. Um, he really did ask me about the pre-incarnate existence of Jesus without knowing that's what he was asking me and had just turned four that week. So it was really crazy. I thought he was going to grow up and be a phenomenal pastor. That was the vision I had for Job. 
And about um, about a year and a half after he moved on to the next class, well, no, just a little over less than a year after he graduated from my class and went on to the pre-K class, he was diagnosed with um, one of the worst forms of childhood brain cancer you can have and um, did radiation. And obviously we we're praying for him and it was really shattering for our church. And he passed away just over, just a little over four months after the diagnosis um, in September of 2017. And I had been writing these stories. Um, I had worked in publishing for many, many years. And so as I would teach after a couple of years, once I landed on the promises thread and saw it, then every time I would teach, it was kind of inevitable. And I'm also, I write a lot. So it would, the stories would kind of start writing themselves in my head. And, but I was, I had committed, I was never going to publish ever, um, for a variety of reasons. I just didn't want to publish. And so I hadn't told anybody and, but at Job's, um, at Job's memorial service at our church, his dad got up and read, recite, there's not actually a verb proclaimed is the closest mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for it. It was as though he spoke it for the first time, um, all of Psalm 103 and which starts with bless the Lord, O my soul. And this is a father who's, you know, moments day, day from burying his five-year-old son who looks so much like him. And there's a verse, I believe it's verse 13, where it speaks about as a father has for his children. And I know that Psalm. And so it was so powerful as he kept, you know, proclaiming the Lord but when he got to that verse, I knew that verse was coming. And I thought, what faith allows him to stand? What faith allows him to say these things? Mm -hmm. And I thought it's the same faith that Job had, because we knew that Job was with the God he had asked me about. Job in that moment knew the Trinity better than I know the Trinity today, because mm -hmm. his faith so sure, so solid. And it was the faith of his father. And I thought, I, I can never stand in front of that rug again and teach that class again, assuming they're going to have 12 more teachers the way right. that I did with Job, because we never know how long someone's going to have. And, um, and they can't and understand. God keeps, yeah. And God keeps his promises. I just, and it's a, it's an important part. I think it's an important part of understanding your motivation to write this, and it's an important part of receiving this book. Jennifer Lyle, thank you so much. The book is The Promises of God, Storybook Bible, The Story of God's Unstoppable Love. We'll be right back. All right, I feel like that was a feast. Um, I wanted to ask her, all right, so then after they've amassed all of this uh, money and influence and they want to peddle it in the nonprofit sector, uh, where does that thread, where do those threads lead? Because we often hear about the billionaire class pumping money into uh, into certain nonprofit efforts. So anyway, I just, I feel like that's a thread we're going to have to pull again with Sarah Chase. Uh, thank you so much for listening, taking us with you on the first hour. There's a whole nother hour up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.